Well, good morning. It is good to be with you today. Our scripture reading is from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 14. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals to the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. I have this memory, this story, and it's a, it's a bit of an embarrassing story, but I think it illustrates this point. I remember I went to a wedding uh, with my wife. It was a Catholic wedding. The bride and groom were Catholic, and if you've been to a Catholic wedding, it's a little bit different than, than other weddings. There's, there's a little more rituals that are involved. There's kneeling, there's standing, and I was trying to figure it out because my wife was in the wedding party, so I'm just kind of watching other people do the different rituals. And it got to the part of the service when we were to take the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're familiar, I, I didn't know this at the time, but I wasn't supposed to participate in that because I wasn't Catholic. And so there's this, there's this part where people walk up to take the Lord's Supper, and I'm walking up thinking, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to take the Lord's Supper. But then I'm noticing that when they get to the priest, they're doing something with their hands, and they hold their hands out, and they say these words, and I, I have no idea what to do. So I get to the priest, and he can already tell. Like, I get there, he's looking at me, and I can, he can already tell that I have no idea what I'm doing and that I'm not supposed to be there. And so I get up to the priest, and I'm looking at him, and he's kind of giving me this look like, move on, it's not for you. And I just kind of stare at him, and I like wait him out, right? Just standing there with my hands open. <laughs> and so we do this awkward dance till eventually he relents and just gives me the bread, and I move on. And I look over, and I see my wife is just mortified. She's just dying, because she knows I'm not supposed to be there. And I learned a valuable lesson that day. I learned a little bit about Catholic weddings. Um, but I'll tell you, in that moment, I remember feeling like such an outsider, like I didn't belong there, like this wasn't part of my family, this wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, and it was a, it was a genuine feeling of feeling like I was on the outside. Today we're talking about hospitality. It's about seeing those who are on the outside and welcoming them in. It's about seeing the outsider, those who are different than us, and bringing them into our life. And the word hospitality may not mean what we think it means on, on the surface. You know, when I, think, when I thought of hospitality, I thought, okay, sometimes my wife gets these uh, Southern Living magazines, 
right? That was like my idea of hospitality. It's like, okay, everything looks nice. The house is perfect. We have these perfect meals served to perfect people and everything's great, right? This was my view of what hospitality was, but the scriptures tell us something a little different, that hospitality is actually quite radical and life-changing. Now, there's a lot to unpack. You may have noticed my scriptures, there was a lot of them. Um, There's a lot to unpack in there. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see a principle behind hospitality, the promise for Christian hospitality, and lastly, the inspiration for it. So let's begin by looking at the principle behind it. We're going to look at start in verse 3. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now, it's, whenever you read the scriptures, and there's kind of a weird transition there, we need to ask the question, like, what's, what's happening in this text? It begins by saying, remember those who are in prison. Imagine yourself how you would feel. Imagine yourself if you were poor, if you were a traveler. Imagine how you would feel in that situation. There's this, almost this idea of social justice. We're supposed to care for the downtrodden and the oppressed. And then he switches gears and he says, marriage should be honored by all. God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Right? We see this sort of liberal social, go- uh, social justice view and then this conservative sexual ethic all in one section. What's happening? And I think there's a principle here. And whether we want to believe it or not, I think all of us, to some degree, have been influenced by the Western Enlightenment. That rights and happiness of the individual will always take precedent over the individual. But the gospel says something different about your money and your sexuality. That God has given you your money, right? That God has given you your sexuality, not just for yourself, but your money is not just for your personal use. Your sexuality is a gift, but it's a gift for procreation and to build communities in the same way your money is a gift to be used, and it is God's money, not our own. And the gospel has says that your money and your sexuality is not your own. Jesus did not treat his body as his own. He gave it in order to build a community. And we live in this hyper-individualist society, right? We build fences around our homes. We rarely leave our homes to talk to our neighbor. In fact, they now have an app so that you can get on your phone so that you don't even have to leave your home to go to the grocery store, right? You can type in your groceries and they'll deliver it to your door. We live in an individualist society. An opening your doors to a stranger feels countercultural. And the fact is this, I believe that hospitality and the way that the Bible defines it is in fact countercultural. So I ask the question, how are you treating your money, your sexuality? And the question I pose to you is, are you being affected by the Western Enlightenment or the gospel? Let's look at verse two. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Another translation says this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The word entertained in the Greek is this word philozenia, right? Love of the stranger, love of the other, love of people who are not like us. 
It's where we get the word xenophobia, which is the opposite. That's fear of the stranger. I'm afraid of people who are not like me. But philoxenia means to love people who are different. And it had a very specific meaning to bring them into your home as guests. There's a reference here, right? This reference to entertaining angels unaware is actually a reference to Genesis 18, right? If you remember the story, Abraham brought three strangers unaware. He gave them a meal and he was unaware that he had been entertaining the Lord and his angel messengers. So what is this saying? You see, in ancient times, hospitality was of high value. And you have to understand that in ancient times, there weren't hotel chains, there weren't cars and and trains and planes to get around. People had to walk to get places. It was a dangerous task to have to move from one place to another. And it's also likely that when you would walk somewhere new, you wouldn't know anybody. You weren't emailing them or calling them on the phone. You were going to a new place entirely. And so travel would really have been impossible had it not been for kindness of strangers and and this idea of showing hospitality. And as a result, it was very important in these ancient cultures. So the hospitality, the ancient hospitality code has four parts to it. Okay, there's the invitation, the screening, the provision, and the departure. The invitation was this. When you traveled to a new city, a new town, you would stand at the gate and you would wait for an invitation to come into someone's home. You see this a couple times in the scriptures, Genesis 19, 24, when Acts, uh, in, in Acts when Paul comes to Philippi, right? You see him standing at the gate and you wait for an invitation. You would then go through the screening process. They needed to find out whether or not you were uh, an enemy of the city. So there would be an interview process to see whether or not you'd be a good fit. Then there was the provision. If you were a host, it was your job to wash the traveler's feet provide them a feast, give them a place to rest because they're weary travelers. And finally, the departure. Typically, you would leave the next day or or usually um, the next two nights. There was kind of a a, a rule that you would not stay longer than two nights. That's why this worked, right? Because you wouldn't stay forever. The guest job was to be out in two nights. But even though there's this high value in hospitality, when, when God made a covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, he began to explain the community that he wanted them to be. And there was an even greater emphasis, an elevation, where he ratchets up this idea of hospitality to a new level. Hospitality to the Jews and to Israel was way beyond any other culture. We see this in Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. You see, here we get a glimpse into God's heart. And there are a couple ways in which this goes beyond any ancient culture. You see, in ancient culture, hospitality was valued because of because it, expediency, right? It was the only way we can make travel work. And there were some ancient traditions of courtesy, but what God says is something different. He says, you were wanderers in Egypt. You would have died out there had it not been for me that I clothed you and fed you and eventually brought you home. Your salvation was hospitality. 
And if you've been saved by grace and you are recipients of this life-giving hospitality, because you were strangers and aliens, now we are to go and do the same. And there's something else here. Um, God also kind of blew the scope out of it, right? You see, in the ancient hospitality code, what was it? There's two nights, and then you're supposed to go. But God says to be hospitable means to what? To care for the orphan and the widow. Your own poor, care for the strangers and foreigners. He's talking about immigrants, refugees, those who maybe had to leave their town because there was a war, war going on or something was happening, and for whatever reason, they had to travel. Those who've come from other, hand, other lands, he says, that's where your hospitality should go. And what's being said is that if you've been blessed, if you have a home, if you have means, if you have the wealth, that the poor, these weary travelers, the immigrants and refugees and people of other ethnicities and races who have moved here without money or power or connection, these are the people we are to spend ourselves on. He's expanding the scope not to say that it's, it's less than bringing people into your home. That's part of it. But that's even more. It means taking your goods, your money, your home, saying, it's not my own. It belongs to God, and I'm going to spend it because God has called me to. Now, I read this, and I'm thinking, I don't have the gift of hospitality. Like, this is hard for me. This is preaching to me. I think about my, my own life and the way I live and the way I've operated. There's a tendency for me, something inside me that wants to keep things for myself, right? So I'm not preaching from a place of where I say I got this figured out. I think I'm preaching of a place that's saying, look, I need to hear this as much as any of you. But isn't that what the scriptures do, right? They challenge us. They get underneath some of the things, some of the attitudes, some of the ways in which we live our lives, and they, they, they remind us that God is calling us to something greater. Let's go back to the New Testament, verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. William Lane, in his commentary on Hebrews, said this, the expansion of the term to include men and women beyond the immediate family was considered ludicrous. For Christians, a delight in the guest-host relationship reflects the expectation that God will play a significant role in the ordinary exchange between guests and hosts. This lends to hospitality a sacramental quality. Now, I want to stop on that word because I thought this was profound. This word sacramental, what do we, what do we consider a sacrament? Baptism, the Lord's Supper, right? These are common things, the bread, the wine, water, but what happens when you take common things, things you can get anywhere, and you dedicate it to God? It becomes a way for God's power to enter into our lives. And this is the promise of hospitality, right? And it can be simple. It can be common. It could be simple as bringing someone out for a cup of coffee and listening to what's going on in their life, being present with that person, it could be as simple as inviting your neighbors over to have, to have dinner, to, have, uh, to hang out and, and have your kids play together. We're going to hear a testimony of one of our congregants who did that very thing, and it's a really powerful story. Right? This is common, simple, not perfect. And I think sometimes we think in order to show hospitality, we have to have things perfect. In an article uh, by John Piper, he wrote this, and I found it quite convicting. He said, when we practice hospitality, here's what happens. We experience the refreshing joy 
of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Did you catch the imagery there? We cannot experience the fullness of knowing, loving, and becoming like Jesus if we hoard our resources, close our homes, and live selfishly. And if we don't consider how we can be a conduit of God's hospitality to others, how we use our money, how can I use my things, how can I use my home, how can I use my church home, then it's very possible that we decay and we fall into what we don't want to be. And I would ask this question because I think this is important. Who among us, among the people around us, needs help in the battle against loneliness? There was an article recently released that my generation, the millennial generation, is called, they called it the loneliest generation. Which is interesting because the article noted that this generation is more connected, right? We have more connection to our friends uh, via our phones, social media. Uh, we have ways and abilities to connect, FaceTime. Um, you can see people live from your phone. That's incredible, right? Ways in which we could connect, and yet there's reported that our generation experiences high levels of anxiety, depression, and loneliness. There's a phenomenon happening where they're calling it deferred loneliness, where somebody feels this feeling of feeling alone or lost, and instead of allowing themselves to feel, what do they do? They pull out their phone, they scroll their social media apps, they send a text, they do something in order to defer that feeling, and so they're not actually experiencing it. And instead of connecting with others to meet that need, they defer it and put it off, and it leads to deeper loneliness, deeper anxiety, and deeper depression. Here's what I believe. I believe that every single one of us has the ability to change the trajectory of someone's life by showing them hospitality. And it's likely there are those among us who struggle with loneliness. I remember when I moved here, um, when I took the job at Eastminster, I didn't know anybody in Wichita. I remember being at this church. I was, doing, I was a liturgist on stage here, seeing all these faces, had no idea what I was doing. And thinking to myself, man, I, there are so many people around me, but I don't really know these people. And I remember there were times I got an apartment on the south side of Wichita. I was living by myself. I would drive home after work, and I would feel this pang, this, this sense of loneliness. I didn't have any friends. I didn't, I didn't know what it was like. But I also have this memory, and I can remember every single person who showed me hospitality during that first year. I remember the Amstutz family, right, who, who brought me in, took me into their home, served me lunch. It was simple. I think they got Chipotle, right? But they brought me into their home and served me lunch, and they, they connected with me. I remember Tom Davis, who specifically went out of his way to take me out to Barnard's multiple times, invest in me as a leader, and care for me. I remember Chad Edwards and Billy Boyle taking me out for coffee and investing in me as a leader, a young leader. I remember Matt and Rachel Niebling, who invited me into their home with their two kids running around, which I can now really appreciate, knowing what it's like to have two kids. And for Paul Bamo, who literally texted me every time KU was playing and said, hey, come over, we're going to watch the game. To those I mentioned, I want you to know that your kindness mattered. And for a lot of people, I think that these struggles often go unnoticed, but those simple acts of showing hospitality can change someone's life. So I ask again, 
Who among you needs help in the battle against loneliness? And here's the deal. If you invite someone into your home, it's not about the silver and china. It's not about the house looking perfect or the food being perfect. I mean, you could serve peanut butter and jelly. It doesn't really matter what is being served. And it's nice to have nice things and, and to make a house look good. And those are all good things, but it's not the point. If you've ever been in the Janderson home, it's likely that you've stepped on a Hot Wheels car. Um, there's probably going to be some golden retriever hair everywhere because we have a dog that sheds a lot. Our house isn't perfect, but that's not the point. And here's the deal. If you show radical hospitality to others over the years, you don't know the conversations, the meals, the welcome, how these things can change a person over time. And I'm sure there's some people here in this room who you've experienced that hospitality. You've, you've had people take you in and you know how much that means. And you know, you know what that means? It's likely that you were entertaining angels unaware. Okay, let's summarize. What does hospitality mean? Uh, I took this definition from Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. He said this. I'm going to paraphrase a bit, but he says, hospitality is an attitude of the heart and a practice. It's an attitude of the heart that goes after new people and makes them feel welcome. And especially, and this is important, goes out and welcomes people whom the world excludes. People who are different, who look different, who talk different. People who are unwealthy. People who are unhealthy. And when you make people like that feel welcome, you have God's heart for hospitality. But it's also practice. It's bringing people into your home. It's taking people to your favorite places, out for coffee, for lunch, for dinner. It's a listening to them, making them feel accepted. And it's the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the lonely, the refugee, and the homeless who need hospitality more than anyone. I know some of you um, who are, have done foster care, some of you who have, who have adopted, who've brought people in who once didn't have a home. And that, my friends, is showing hospitality. And I wanna, I wanna get real practical for a minute. I actually wrote down nine ways that we can practice hospitality here at Eastminster or in your own home. I'm gonna go through these quick, but first is this. In your home, invite your neighbors to your physical home. I can't, I'm, I'm excited to show you a video we're gonna see about someone who did that from our church, and it's pretty amazing. Have them for dinner, um, have, have a barbecue, whatever you want to do, but bring your neighbors into your home. See who's physically around you. Invite them in. Number two, invite others, colleagues, friends to your spiritual home, right? Eastminster is our spiritual home, and it should be a place that is so warm and so welcome that when we bring outsiders in, they feel at home. You might have to drag someone here. You may, you may say, hey, come to the service and I'll buy you lunch after. Whatever you have to do to get people here, invite them into our spiritual home. Number three, Christians should eat together. And this can be a really informal thing. It could be as simple as going up to someone and say, hey, you should come over to my house after church and we're gonna have pizza, whatever. Like, keep it simple. It doesn't have to be this elaborate thing. Um, but eat together, invite people in. Make mealtime a time where we share with one another. Number four, you can host a grow group in your home. Uh, some of you may feel this call. You feel a sense that God wants you to practice hospitality in a radical way. One way of doing this is to say, hey, I want to host a grow group in my home. I want to have people in my house on a weekly basis, which sounds scary, right? But remember, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's about your presence, to have people in your home, host a grow group, talk to Ben Marquez if that's something you're interested in. Number five, um, we, we are a part of helping a, a, a refugee uh, Congolese congregation who meet out in our students, they're meeting there right now, 
And there's a team called the Riot Team that, that specifically invests in that group. And we as a church are attempting our best to show hospitality to the group of people who have been through a lot. If you hear their stories, some of their stories are heartbreaking, but inspirational and powerful. And I, I have had some, uh, there, there are a bunch of ways we can plug in there. It can be helping with the childcare. It can be serving on the riot team. It could be help providing transportation for a lot of them don't have vehicles to get here. But um, every high school student who has served the riot team or served the Oaks Fellowship has told me, it's like, like clockwork. They'll say, you know, I thought I could do a lot of good by helping them, but really it's changed me more than anything. And that's powerful. A couple other practical things. Six, uh, you can volunteer to be a host home for the gathering. This spring we're doing something called the gathering. We did it last year where we will host meals at people's homes and try to connect intergenerationally. And if that's something you're interested in, bringing a bunch of people to your home, you want to be a host home, we can get you plugged in for that. Number seven, you can be a greeter and usher. I mean, there's no way to be more welcoming when people come to our church than to stand out in the parking lot and welcome them, put a smile on your face and say, hey, you're a part of this family. We want you to be here. Number eight, since I'm the youth pastor, I can plug my own ministry. Um, Man, if I had a dollar for every time the Ramsires opened their pool to our youth group, I'd be a rich man, right? I have some of you, I know some of you, the Hangies and others who consistently open your home for us to use, and I'm grateful for that. And so if that's something you're interested in, you want to host an event for our youth, we do a lot of events, especially in the summers off-site, and we'd love, love to be a part of that. And last, number nine, and I love that Joseph did this this morning, you know that practice that we did, it's called passing the peace. And it's been, it's been an ancient liturgical practice that's been going on for 2,000 years. Like, this thing's been going on forever. And what we're doing when we do that is we're going to someone, looking them in the eye and saying, I was a stranger and God took me in. And you're a part of this family. And so when we do that, at the end of the service, we're going to dismiss. I know the temptation is always to go talk to the people you know. But look for those who seem like they're on the outside. Look for those who you haven't met before. Connect with someone new because that's part of what we do here as a family. Hospitality may be difficult, it may be expensive. So where do we get the inspiration? Before I close with the inspiration, what I wanna do is we're gonna watch a short video. Kim Powers um, uses her gift of hospitality in a very simple but powerful way. So we're gonna watch this video and then I'll close. My name's Kim Power. Um, My husband is Wes Power, and we've been attending Eastminster for about eight years. We have two sons, Bradley, who's five years old, and Brody, who just turned three. Hospitality is definitely one of my spiritual gifts. It's important for us to have an open door policy because we feel like that's the way Jesus conducted his life um, and his ministry when he was here on earth. It talks about him reclining at the table. A lot of his sermons involved food or feeding the people or um, it talks about where they were located and what they were doing and how they were sitting there and I just feel like that's a big part of how Jesus ministered to people. You want people to be comfortable and their basic needs to be taken care of before you preach the gospel at them. Um, It helps open people's ears up if they're comfortable. Our whole family is on board with it and I've even gotten our five-year-old Bradley to start helping me and so he knows to like welcome people in the door and he likes to try and get people drinks. 
I created a Facebook group for our cul-de-sac. Nothing really came of the Facebook group at first, but after we'd been there for about a year and a half, I decided that I wanted people over the day before Halloween and I wasn't ready <laughs> and that's kind of unlike me because I like to be a perfectionist but I definitely felt God's prompting and put a message on the Facebook group for that everyone could come over between I think I said 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. they could come whenever they wanted and we would have chili and cinnamon rolls so I didn't think anyone would show up um, and our entire cul-de-sac ended up showing up. By the end of the night, um, we probably had 20 people in our house and there were kids running up and down the stairs and it was just, it was perfect. I remember looking over at Wesley and just having this like cheese grin on my face and you know, cause he knew, he knew what I was thinking. Like it was exactly what we'd always wanted to happen. I think it just helped people to like see our home. It's not like an anomaly now. So it was very casual and um, people know now that they can come and knock on our door and it's not a big deal. Part of it is just like breaking that ice, I feel like. Um, so when Wesley and I joined the church, um, I was actually really nervous about joining the church because I knew that my spiritual gift was hospitality and I thought, well, as soon as I join the church, they're just going to ask me to start hosting things and having people over to my house. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I can't do that right now. And I'm, you know, so this was a big insecurity that I had. And we took the membership class and we did our little disc assessment for what your spiritual gifts are. And and I was the first one to go, and so Pastor Stan asked me, and I said, it was hospitality, and he goes, oh, that's great, but you have little kids right now, and your season of life right now is being hospitable, hospitable to your kids and taking care of them, and you know, your time will come to host families and do church events, and it was like God just spoke to me right in that moment, like, no, you're doing okay. You don't have to do all the things all the time. Um, even though you like to host, you don't have to do all the big events right now. And if it's just, you know, letting people come and eat chili in between trick-or-treating and stuff like that, that's what you do. You do what you can in whatever stage of life you're in. I love that for a few reasons. One, I love what she said in that it, it was simple. It was chili and cinnamon rolls, right? It wasn't this elaborate three-course meal. It was just simple. Um, and I love when she mentioned the fact that, you know, there was a fear of, well, what if nobody shows up? What if people don't come? But what you come to find out is that when you extend invitation for people to come into your homes, usually people are, are pretty quick to say yes. I think that's what was so cool about that story. Two great resources, and we're talking about, to close, uh, sort of the impetus, the, the inspiration for why we show hospitality. Uh, one is in the past, and one is in the future, and then I'll, I'll land this plane. I had three people tell me I went way too long last service, so I'll try and speed it up. Uh, here's what's in the past. Uh, verse five, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In Will Lane's commentary, he, put, he points out that the English language rarely gets this right, right? Because in the Greek, the first clause is, I will never, never leave you. 
two negatives. And the second clause is, I will never, never, never forsake you. So there's five total clauses. It's just a relentless showing of the unconditional nature of what God is saying. He will never, never, never leave us. In the first two services, we sang the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And there's a line at the end of the hymn, it closes with this line, that so though all hell shall, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. See, when the writer wrote the lyrics, he wasn't just trying to fill space. He was literally quoting the text that I will never, never, never forsake you. And when we live out of the certainty that God, in fact, will never leave us, when we can live out of the certainty of God's undeserved love for us, it frees us up to be hospitable and to give and to spend ourselves for the sake of others. And then we see in verse 12, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see, when Jesus died, he experienced the opposite of what it meant to experience hospitality. He was outside the city gate, and hospitality is taking the weary stranger in. Jesus was thrown out, he was killed. And this takes us back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, when we were home, in a place without death or parting, where there's no decay, no disease. But we fell, and that home no longer exists. And when we turned away from God, we all went into exile. Which brings us to the place where we recognize that all of us are wanderers. All of us are exiles. We are all outside the gates. And the reality is this. You may live in Wichita, Kansas for the rest of your life. But there's a reality. Things will decay. Your home will slowly fade away. Right? Your health will decay. We will lose ones that we love. And this home is temporary. We're all in exile And it is a sin in our life that drives us to hoard our resources, to love only ourselves, and we don't want God to tell us what to do. But Jesus, who was cast outside the city gate, who died on a cross, who was born in a feed trough, right? This is why Jesus says, the foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he says, what on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we now know from our text is this, never, never, never will I forsake you. In our place, God took what we deserved, the exile we deserved. He was cast out so God could bring us in. He was made homeless so that God could give us radical hospitality and bring us into his family. And Paul says it perfectly in Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now Christ Jesus, who, you, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, Jesus was made homeless so that we could be brought home. And lastly, in closing the future, verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. This enduring city, this city is the city mentioned in Revelation 21, when God in the future will open the gates of his true home in the final feast where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more weeping, where we will finally no longer be weary travelers, when the fullness of God's glory is revealed, where we will finally be home. There's a great quote at the end of Chronicles of Narnia, um, 
it's a, in the last battle, there's, there's actually, it's funny, it's a unicorn who says this, but I think it's pretty profound. He says this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for my entire life. There is a future home where we will belong, where we will dwell. And that is great news. In verse 13, let us then go outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Jesus, the ultimate host, right? Jesus is always feeding people, fed the 5,000. He washed his disciples' feet. His radical hospitality brings us home. And as verse 13 says, let us go, let us hear this. May we go show hospitality to others, to the stranger, to the immigrant, to the lonely, to the poor. Because who knows? You may be entertaining angels unaware. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us the promise that if we open our lives to strangers, you will work in their lives and ours. And it will come at a cost to us, but nothing compared to the cost of your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray for boldness. Remind us again and again and again, because we so often forget the freedom that we have through the gospel, that we can show radical hospitality to others because we have been brought home by your son, Jesus. And the freedom to love others, the freedom to give of ourselves, because we know that you will never, never, never forsake us. And now, may you bless these tithes and offerings. May we give generously, knowing that our money is not our own. Would you bless our tithes and offerings? For your beautiful name, amen.